Welcome, everyone. Welcome. This is a live recording, so if you would silence your phones. Uh, I have my script here. Uh, I've silenced, but I'll be having uh, my script up as we go. I actually think you're going to be playing Wordle the entire time. <laughs> don't, don't, <laughs> don't give it away. Wordle's too good. Um, so glad to have all of you here. So glad to be together to do this. My name is Carl Nellis. I'm a producer with Gilded Audio. And let me start by introducing the host of the podcast, The Reason We're All Still Here, Jeffrey Lewis. Hey, great to be here. Jeffrey is a professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, where he's on the team that works on nuclear nonproliferation. So he's a big shot when it comes to stopping big bombs. He has started armscontrolwonk.com. He has launched, hosted, and contributed to lots of podcasts, including The Deal, about the Iran nuclear deal, Snafu with Ed Helms, and now the reason we're all still here. It is our podcast about private citizens like scientists, activists, journalists, who step up to play peacemaker when the government won't or can't. And tonight we are joined by Nagin Farsad. Nagin. Hey! Uh, you probably know Nagin because she hosts the political comedy podcast, Fake the Nation, and is a regular on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Or maybe you know her from her stand-up, her book, her films, her TV work. All great reasons to believe that Nagin is the best. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, also, you should know, and here we're, we're coming to the theme of our podcast, the reason we're all still here, that Nagin is the kind of person who, as it says on the tin, is the reason we're all still here. She's the kind of person who steps up during a crisis when formal policy fails and very serious people in the world of box sticking and protocol hit a dead end. She was a New York City policy advisor for a time. But she is not lost in the policy maze. For example, a few years ago, her campaign to disarm anti-Muslim bigotry with delightful posters on the subway was choked with red tape and then shut down by the MTA. Feel free to live fact check if you'd like. Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> no, so far, you're, you, you've got it right. They were jerks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the posters were all about making peace and building understanding the themes of our podcast, right, Jeffrey? Absolutely. Well, the MTA literally changed their rules about subway ads just to block the posters from going up. So as Nagin and her team said at the time, the delightful posters campaign became a delightful lawsuit. And fortunately, hashtag Team Nagin won. So. Yeah. Honestly, guys, if you've never sued a major uh, state agency, <laughs> I highly recommend it. I likened it to a year and a half long pap smear. Um, so, gentlemen, you know what I'm talking about. And it was really, um, it was like really long and arduous, but then ultimately really tremendous to like see change happen. So that was cool. You're here. So uh, now, Nagin, you continue to work on all sorts of issues, including policy issues and issues of major importance from the comedy seat, which tonight is this one where she joins us to talk about Dr. Strangelove. It's a film that opens with a rogue general who decides it's time to start the whole nuclear punch-out between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. In 1964 was when the film was released. Here it is in a nutshell. The general who launches this attack, he manipulates protocols put in place to order a nuclear attack even if the U.S. president is dead. A bomber wing heads for Moscow. Of course, the president isn't dead, and the scenes that really make Strange Love a classic take place in the war room, where the president meets with his big brain strategic advisors, generals and strategists, and the Russian ambassador to figure out how to stop the nuclear attack from becoming nuclear Armageddon. We bounce throughout the film between the bomber crew, the bloodthirsty general's office who started the whole thing, and the presidential war room. As things spiral out of control, efforts to stop the bomber fail. Absurdly. 
Nukes hit Moscow, and a Russian doomsday device retaliates, and the world blows up. That's the film. Maybe I should have given you the spoiler warning at the top, but there it is, A to B, the whole thing. Uh, you guys have had decades to watch this movie, so... 60 years, 60 years. So we're going to talk about how this movie is a documentary. Obviously, the world didn't blow up in the 60s, but that's part of the point, because when Kubrick made Strange Love, he may himself have become one of the reasons we're all still here, so we'll be talking about that. It turns out some of the stupidest stuff in the movie is true. So in 2004, on the 40th anniversary of the movie, the journal Arms Control Today, this is your bag, Jeffrey. Oh, absolutely. Um, it pointed out that the movie's nuclear paranoia felt like it came from a remote historical moment. But 20 years further on, coming up to the 60th anniversary, does nuclear war feel far away? Sometimes. Sometimes not so much. And actually, the scheming of the nuclear strategists in Strange Loves looks a lot like the way that recent events played out around the Iran nuclear deal. So let's start there. Jeffrey, I know this is your favorite movie. When you were watching the negotiations around the Iran deal proceed, were you thinking of Strange Love throughout? What was, what was going on for you at the time? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, like, okay, the rest of you think about the Roman Empire every day. I think about <laughs> Dr. Strange Love. Like, of course it's my freaking favorite movie, right? Like, I'm a, I'm a professor who studies nuclear policy. It's not like I'm going to go watch Bridges of Madison County or something. Uh, what I, what I love about that movie and what I think it captures so well and the reason I think it has an almost documentary quality is the things in the movie that are funny and ridiculous are somehow the things that are the most true. And so if you think about the movie, when you look at the characters, the characters who are interacting with one another are deeply human. They're, they're almost ridiculous. You know, the things they're worried about seem absurd compared to a nuclear war, except for they're the things that, like, we all worry about on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, do you ever think about, like, the fact that, like, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, like, John F. Kennedy spent, yeah, he had to go to the toilet, right? Like, we, we imagine him in, like, the XCOM room, but that's not his whole life, right? So, yeah, when I, particularly, I think, with the Iran nuclear deal, you know, the, the reason we initially did the podcast about that topic was because we really wanted to tell people the stories uh, of the people who did this. And the explanation for the deal isn't like reading you the text. It's looking at the human relationships, the things that get satirized in Dr. Strangelove. Those are the things that actually make diplomacy possible. So, you know, it's just something as simple as uh, the fact that in a really critical period in negotiations, uh, the U.S. Secretary of Energy, Ernie Moniz, met with his Iranian counterpart, Ali Salehi, and, and they both had an MIT connection, right? And it takes something really special to try to make peace. That's a, that's a very difficult human thing to do. And so those human bonds, I think, are, are absolutely essential. And I, I think the movie, in its own funny way, gets that. Mm. Nagin, when you were following the Iran nuclear deal negotiations, what was the context that you were putting it? So Jeffrey's like, strange love and my expertise. Yeah. When you were following negotiations, how, where was it fitting into your world? Well, I mean, um, in case you guys hadn't figured this out, I'm, I'm an Iranian-American Muslim like all of you. And so <laughs> I was like, it, you know, having gone to college and then in grad school in the post 9-11 era, I don't mean to date myself. I'm so <laughs> young. You guys, I'm like 22. So I was like five years old when all this happened. 
But like Iran's nuclear uh, uranium enrichment was in the news all the time. I don't know if you guys remember this, but it was always like they're enriching. They're going to enrich tomorrow. They can enrich in two months. They can enrich in three years. There was like numbers and dates constantly flying around. I feel like it was, you know, the axis of evil. All that stuff was very popular. And so the and I like I don't want to overstate the case here because Iranians, I mean, we do love to enrich some here. I was enriching uranium <laughs> in the green room backstage. You know what I mean? So and honest, we can't get enough. And like, honestly, it's like, it smells like bacon. So that's an added benefit. It smells, you know, we're not supposed to eat it, but like we can smell it. Um, but, but so for me, it was just like, well, oh, this, like this kind of irritating stereotype that was in the news all the time. Um, and also it was a, it was a complicated issue. I think with the JCPOA, all that stuff was so complicated because it was like this regime that, mo- you know, most of us Iranians in the diaspora don't like. Um, and yet we do want them to do better and be more, you know, peaceful and be a part of the, um, global economy. So, um, so for me, it, it, you know, I had a personal feeling of just like uh, most of my family is still in Iran. So I came at it from what could transpire that would like actually help most of my family. Mm-hmm. Um, throughout the night, we're going to watch a couple of clips. This is the first one. Unfortunately, the personal connections in Strange Love play out like this. So let's play that first clip. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, Well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? (laughs) Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even got it. (laughs) They will not reach their targets for at least another hour. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's so hilarious what I do, right? So, Nagin, from your policy, government work, how much is this like real government work? No, honestly, I mean, I just feel like half of everything that happens between government officials is exchanging pleasantries. You know what I mean? Like, because I have to like, they're human beings, as you pointed out. I was an intern for Hillary Clinton, so I was like as meaningful as the office stapler. Like, I was a nobody. But I remember one time when she came in and she's such an iconic figure and, and you just think she inhales, you know, air and then breathes breathes out like policy reform. Like I just thought she was just this closed system that didn't need any sustenance. And this one day we were like talking about sandwich orders, you know? And I was like, Hillary Clinton doesn't need a ham sandwich. You know what I mean? Like that's not possible, but like they're people, right? And so that that's the the funny thing about like world leaders is that like you said about JFK, like he poops, he pees. And then I think, you know, the the other thing is that I think is really funny is that countries know their deal, right? So like there's countries that are like, oh, why am I not in the G20, you know? And there's like that feeling of insecurity that comes out, right? I mean, you, (laughs) he's looking at me like I'm nuts, but, um, no. (laughs) I'm just trying not to crack up up here. I have like a professional standard to uphold. (laughs) 
but you know, and it's like, it's like, but like Luxembourg knows it's like a ridiculous little country, but like when it goes on a phone call, it has to be like, guys, what are we doing? I'm Luxembourg. I need, show me respect. And that's the funny thing that we sometimes forget is the, how human, as you were mentioning, everything is so human that takes place. And that's been my experience. Um, you know, it, my, my, my limited experience in government work. Mm. And, and Jeffrey, you mentioned Ernie Moniz and Salahi and their personal relationship, but that wasn't the reason why the deal, the Iran deal, failed. That was what laid the groundwork for it to be put together in the first place, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the whole idea of the podcast for those first two seasons was telling the story of how it came together and, and how it fell apart. And, you know, there's this wonderful moment at the, at the end of the first season where, you know, you followed the stories and you really have a sense of these people's personal connection and you understand why they're doing this. And they're not doing this because they're naive and they're not doing this because they love each other. Like they, they really want to solve a problem and they're willing to stick their necks out to do it. And then comes the criticism. And it was really fascinating to me because uh, one of our producers just put clips of the criticism with no commentary. And it was amazing how hollow and empty that criticism sounded. It was almost horrific. In, in the way it came across when you actually knew the stories, right? And so the way in which that to me is like Dr. Strangelove is exactly like when in Strangelove you see people start to take things seriously, that's like horrifying, right? Because now you're no longer the person who's worried about like getting home and having a good meal and, you know, putting aside things in order to solve this problem. You're this person who's invested in these like bigger deeper ideas that are going to get us all killed, right? So at least from my perspective, you know, you have this deal and then what you really end up with is this just reversion to the norm where it's back to business as usual, where we fixate on all the ideas we have about each other rather than the actual human connections. And that brings us to our next clip and the way that that comes through the strange love lens. So let's play that. For today, war is too important to be left to politicians. They have neither the time, the training, nor the inclination for strategic thought. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. <laughs> you know, that's not even like in the top 10 weird things I've heard for realsies in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nagin, how about you? What I mean, look, this, in terms of this being a documentary, I mean, it's not only a documentary when it comes to like international diplomacy and brinksmanship, but this guy was also sort of like the OG wellness guru because his whole thing was like bodily fluids, fluoridated water. If he was a real character alive today, he would be selling something on Goop. Um, so, so that's like my, I mean, I, I truly think the, the interesting thing about um, this guy is he reminds me of 
like uh, how weird some of our world leaders are like that's the thing that's that's really remarkable you kind of think of 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 presidents and prime ministers as these kind of these august figures who are stable and normal but then there's you know there's people like the president of china like i'm not trying to like talk shit about the president of China, but like, isn't he like a germaphobe or something? Or like, um, there's like this one president of Turkmenistan, my favorite pr- pr- president of Turkmenistan, um, N- Niazad, I think it was his name. He renamed all the days of the week after his family. Like there's a day named after his mom, right? And then he like, ma- he banned dudes from having beards like until they were 70. Like once you hit 70, you were allowed to have a beard. Like what were these rules, you know? And so that's, I think the other um, it's like if you had a quirk as a civilian, it's going to be you're you're then to have power. You're changing calendars, obviously. So the film, it starts with this text. Uh, Let's pull that up. And Jeffrey, if I can have you read read this for us, this kind of sets the stage for how the movie relates to truth, right? Or to what the real world, what's really going on, Jeffrey. Okay, here it goes. It is the stated position of the U.S. Air Force that the safeguards would prevent the occurrence of such events as are depicted in this film. Furthermore, it should be noted that none of the characters portrayed in this film are meant to represent any real persons, living or dead. (laughs) So these things could not happen. No real people are in this movie, but... So, Nagin, as a filmmaker, this disclaimer could go at the end credits, it could go somewhere else. Right. But when this text comes up first, as a storyteller, what is this doing? Yeah, I mean, it's basically saying, like, obviously this stuff is real. <laughs> Where else do you think I got this material? You know? <laughs> let's, let's watch the clip and then come back to what was actually going on in the 50s around this. So let's do the next clip. <clears throat> Mr. President. About uh, 35 minutes ago, General Jack Ripper, the commanding general of um, Burbelson Air Force Base, issued an order to the 34 B-52s of his wing, which were airborne at the time, as part of a special exercise we were holding called Operation Dropkick. Now, it appears that the order called for the planes to uh, attack their targets inside Russia. The uh, planes are fully armed with nuclear weapons with an average load of uh, 40 megatons each. Now, the central display of Russia will indicate the position of the planes. The triangles are their primary targets. The squares are their secondary targets. The aircraft begin penetrating Russian radar cover within uh, 25 minutes. General Turgidson, I find this very difficult to understand. (laughs) I was under the impression that I was the only one in authority to order the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, That's right, sir. You are the only person authorized to do so. And although I uh, hate to judge before all the facts are in, it's beginning to look like uh, General Ripper exceeded his authority. It certainly does. Far beyond the point I would have imagined possible. Well, perhaps you're... um, Forgetting the provisions of Plan R, sir. Plan R? Plan R is an emergency war plan in which a lower echelon commander may order nuclear retaliation after a sneak attack if the normal chain of command has been disrupted. You uh, 
Approved it, sir, you must remember. Surely you must recall, sir, when Senator Buford made that big hassle about our deterrent lacking credibility. And the idea was for Plan R to be a sort of uh, retaliatory safeguard. A safeguard? <laughs> I admit the human element seems to have failed us here. But the idea was to discourage the Ruskies from any hope that they could knock out Washington and yourself, sir, as part of a general sneak attack and escape retaliation because of lack of proper command and control. Well, I assume, then, that the planes will return automatically once they reach their fail-safe points. <laughs> so, when Kubrick was researching for this film, he's looking at nuclear policy under the Eisenhower administration. How much of what we just heard from the film is actually Eisenhower administration policy? I, the Eisenhower administration pre-delegated the authority to use nuclear weapons to commanders in the field. They were worried about precisely this problem. Uh, and so, you know, that it's very, it's very funny because, well, funny, uh, it's horrifying, <laughs> right? But they make all of these decisions and exactly like that interaction where, uh, and by the way, you know, I, I shouldn't admit this. I do this to my boss all the time. You know, you slip something in and they sign it and then, and then, you know, three weeks <laughs> later you're like, oh yeah, yeah, no, you approve that. And they have no freaking idea what you're talking about, Right. You know, exactly the same thing happened. There's a there's a great story where a, a U.S. team went and looked at all the nuclear weapons that the U.S. had stationed in Europe. And uh, the U.S. had, and by the way, we still have this plan in the event of a war to take U.S. nuclear weapons out of bunkers and turn them over to uh, German and Italian and uh, you know, like Belgian and Dutch. I just, it's hard to imagine pilots, right? And you know, they'll take off and drop them. And so this team sees this aircraft out on the runway, right? And right, it's loaded. And so there's the sole US control is a single sentry with a rifle. And so one of the members of the team asked the sentry, like, what, like, if he takes off, like, what are you going to do? And he's like, well, I guess I'm going to shoot the pilot. <laughs> and, and the guy, guy from the team thinks about it for a second and says, you know, shoot the bomb. <laughs> when we were talking about this um, episode in a previous call, you, t you talked about the true part of the R plan. What was that called in real life? Well, it's called the, it used to be called the, it's a terrible name, the PSYOP, okay. the Single Integrated Operations Plan. <laughs> it's a plan and, and they're absolutely over time was the, not the authority, but the ability. Mm. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's incredible because there is this focus on being ready and that focus comes at the expense of being safe or alive. So, But for yeah. how many years did they have th that weird authority, those generals on the field? I mean, that stuff's all classified. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, they might still, you know, there has been a there has been a gradual effort to try to put locks and codes on things. What about that nuclear football? Yeah, you know what that is. That's that is the you, you're going to love this. <laughs> you know that thing is giant, right? Right. So do you, do do you need a 
giant case to make a phone call? No, the president has a secure cell phone. That thing is filled with briefing books. There is no reason for it to be that big. You could put all that information on a tablet and carry it around in like a, a slim little thing, but then it would look like a man purse. And like, <laughs> how freaking emasculating would that be? Right. So no, they, they, they engage in this performative masculinity of having, you know, these soldiers carry around these giant bags and they're just, they're briefing books, which by the way, you know, you tell the president you have two minutes to make a decision. He or she is going to leaf through 300 pages of briefing books. It's literally a show. Well, that didn't make me feel really good. <laughs> None of this is supposed to make you feel good. Yeah, let's do the next part and feel better. So Plan R is the U.S. side, right? And it's these generals can uh, order the attack. The other part of the film that leads to the Armageddon that we reach at the end is on the Soviet side. Um, let's play the next clips. Well, this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? There were those of us who fought against it, but in the end, we could not keep up with the expense involved in the arms race, the space race, and the peace race. And at the same time, our people grumbled for more nylons and washing machines. Our doomsday scheme cost us just a small fraction of what we've been spending on defense in a single year. But the deciding factor was when we learned that your country was working along similar lines, and we were afraid of a doomsday gap. This is preposterous. I've never approved of anything like that. Our source was the New York Times. <laughs> so, a doomsday machine. Uh, let's play the next clip from further on in the same scene. Mr. President, the technology required is easily within the means of even the smallest nuclear power. It requires only the will to do so. But... How is it possible for this thing to be triggered automatically and at the same time impossible to untrigger? Mr. President, it is not only possible, it is essential. That is the whole idea of this machine, you know. <laughs> Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. And so because of the automated and irrevocable decision-making process which rules out human meddling, the doomsday machine is terrifying. It's, it's simple to understand and completely credible and convincing. Gee, I wish we had one of them doomsday machines, Dainty. So, Jeffrey, a doomsday machine wherein a, a U.S. nuke hits the Soviet Union and then all these automatic missiles come out and blow up the world. Totally science fiction, right? Yeah, they built it. <laughs> and exactly like in the movie, they didn't tell us. It was called, it is called, it still exists. It's called Perimeter. Right? And, and the, the Russians had this idea and like one of the things this movie gets really right is all of these insane ideas have these seemingly sensible sounding justifications. I mean, the funniest part about this movie, if you are a, a subject matter expert, is the weirdest, funniest things that get said are just quotes from actual literature. Like they're uttered by people who are being completely serious. But when you actually put them in their proper context, you realize how absurd they are. The Russians had this idea that in a crisis, because we might be able to kill their leadership, then they wouldn't be able to retaliate. So they thought it would be a great idea to have a system that they could switch on. 
And that would give the authority and the ability to launch to a to basically an underground bunker. And those people would be completely cut off from the world except for computers that were connected to sensors. And they could just kind of look at the computer screens. And if the computer screen said, you know, oh yeah, there's a nuclear war happening um, and we can't reach Moscow, then we retaliate. And, and, you know, it's really funny because the Russians say like, well, there was still a human in a loop, right? But the human is sitting in a bunker and all that person has is computer screens. And it's, it's still a system they have. And what's really wild is I sit in these meetings now where we talk to our Russian colleagues and we talk about AI. And our, at least my response to AI is like, I don't want AI anywhere near the nuclear weapons. <laughs> you know, and the Russians are like, oh, but AI is so much better at making decisions than humans. And they sound just like this. And AI loves bunkers. They're like cool with it. So it makes it a little easier. So <laughs> when absurd real strategy like this is roasted by a satire as good as strange love, it can't actually make a difference in the real world, in the world of policy. So when this movie hits in 1964 and strategists and, and policymakers are like, you know, oh shit, I'm in this picture and I don't like it. You know, what was the, what was the real impact of this movie in the sixties and then, and then on? Yeah, I think it's, it's always hard to trace something like that, but just anecdotally, um, knowing some of the people who uh, were in, the, weirdly, I know people who were in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, or at least I, you know, used to, uh, time has its, its impact. Uh, but they, you know, they were really, so much of the early reformed U.S. nuclear strategy comes out of a sense that there is no meaningful civilian control over these weapons, that people have not thought through carefully what these things are and can do. And I think the impact of this movie is that it crystallizes for a lot of the people, especially in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, um, I guess 64, it's really Johnson, but you know, it's, it's, it's the same people. They had already started to begin to push for changes. And I think it really strengthened that sense. Uh, now, you know, real life, and this is one of the things in, in the new podcast we really deal with, we don't have linear arcs. It's not like somebody shows up, they fix the problem, and everything is better, right? We have this endless churn of things get better, things get worse. We have new arguments. We have the same argument over and over and over again. Maybe then we have a new argument, then we're back to the same argument. I mean, it's, you never really get to an end point. But at least, to my mind, this movie really crystallized concerns that people had that the careful, logical arguments that we were constructing just didn't really make sense in the world we lived in, which was populated by the, by the humans. Because, like, <laughs> you've met the humans, right? <laughs> yeah. They're wild. Well, and there was another movie came out the same year, Fail Safe, and it was like Hollywood Luminary. It was Sidney Lumet. It was Henry Fonda. And it plays it all straight, right? And it's like the very serious people will make the right decision and save the world, period. But we don't remember that movie. We don't talk about that. I mean, we're, you know, 60 years on, we're talking about Strange Love. And it's the satire. It's the comedy. And so, Nagin, I mean, I, I come to you and say, comedy is more powerful. <laughs> uh, when, when you think about hitting policy with comedy this hard, uh, how does that resonate with your own work? 
I mean, I feel like you're buttering me up here, but um, <laughs> I do. I tend to agree that comedy is more powerful, and they've actually done studies on this where they've they've taken a group of people and and shown them news um, from Fox, from MSNBC, from The Daily Show, um, and to see how much retention they have of the uh, the, uh, the central facts and like how accurate their retention is. Um, and by and large, the people who watched The Daily Show had much higher levels of retention, uh, and they. So the, the theory is that it is actually easier to retain, recall, um, just uh, process information when it's encased like in a comedy cupcake. You know what I mean? And and it kind of makes it it, it 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 goes to every like mother's inclination. I have a four year old at home to like hide your broccoli in mac and cheese, right? Because nobody wants the broccoli. But like, if you stuff it in the mac and cheese, it's like, that's what you're, and then that you crave the carbs and then you'll get the carbs, but then you'll also get a little broccoli. And so that is what satire is. It is mac and cheese. It has a little broccoli in it. Um, and 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 I think it's, it's really effective and it's fattening, but it's like in a fun way. <laughs> Jeffrey, do we have Kubrick's mac and cheese to thank for the facts we didn't get Plan Art and Doomsday in the 60s or 70s? You know, I mean, I would love to attribute that to a single movie, and, and we probably can't do that. But I, at yes. the same time, I think the most dangerous thing that we can do when we're confronted with uh, a security problem is to take any of this stuff seriously, right? It's to be credulous. Um, you know, whether it's the crazy stuff the Air Force was doing in the 60s where, you know, they used to fly bombers around with nuclear weapons on them. And they would fly them right up to the Russian uh, air, or Soviet airspace and then turn around and come home, you know, like until one of them crashed in Spain and like they like nearly lost one of them, you know, up to the run up to the Iraq war. Right. Like what I think we consistently see is people in power adopt this tone of seriousness in order to really bully us into accepting things that I think deep down we know aren't right. And so like sometimes I think the most powerful thing you can do with a dumb idea is just laugh at it, right? It's that refusal to take it seriously and it, and it forces them to sort of reconcile with like just what a dumb idea these things often are. Mm. And can I ask you a question about, like, there's one thing really missing from the movie, which is the public, but the movie was made for a, a viewing public. Like, how does public opinion and how did it then end up impacting our position on nuclear warfare? Yeah, I think public opinion gets uh, short shrift because normally the public doesn't care about these things. And so, you know, if people don't care, then people in power get to do what they want. But there have been many critical periods, particularly with regard to nuclear weapons, where when the public cares, weird stuff happens. So, you know, people forget that when Ronald Reagan was elected, he came off as a total lunatic. Republicans actually wanted him to make Gerald Ford, the former president, the vice president, and let him be in charge of foreign policy because they were convinced Reagan was going to get us all killed. And one of the things that really made a difference is that a million people showed up in Central Park to express concern about the arms race. And, you know, whatever you think about Ronald Reagan, he could count votes, right? And, and you know, like 
a lot of those million people were people who might plausibly vote for him. And he really ended up pulling back on a lot of the things that he had talked about uh, to the point where, you know, this is like all forgotten now because like hagiography uh, hey, is what it is. And, but I, I, I remember there was a, an editorial in the National Review looking at Reagan's arms control record and, you know, like they were super disappointed in him. You know, like, like he, was, he was turning out to be a big softy because he built that human relationship with Gorbachev. So I think the public has these opportunities when they care to motivate politicians. Because like, you know, politicians don't tend to do the right thing. They don't tend to be brave, but they are really good at doing the popular thing. Mm. <laughs> but speaking of popular opinion, uh, Nagin, thinking about Jeffrey's world, or, or the world of strange love. How distant do we feel today from nuclear Armageddon? I mean, maybe we're more conscious of climate change or other major issues that that feel like we're really confronting them. But these things are happening too, and, and obviously Jeffrey is still doing work, and, and many people are still doing work. Does this feel like a close issue or a, or a far issue generally? Gosh, I mean. Jeffrey was alarmingly vague about how generals could maybe still do this thing. So I'm not sure how I feel after today. I will say I did think while coming into this show that new, that just kind of like the Cold War and like, you know, the possibility of nuclear warfare felt so quaint, you know, because right now we're dealing with climate change, which feels bigger and crazier and and there's factors that we cannot control right like at the end of the day you know bodily fluids we could control but like so i i feel like there was there's something about it that feels so distant um but again it's i think you're right like we as civilians aren't like really you know, we're not giving clues on whether or not we should care about it very much. And so that, that's like a question for you. Well, you know, when I look at nuclear weapons, I see them as the first example of all the problems we face today. Because what's really crazy about nuclear weapons is that they're the first problem we had that was too big for a government to solve by itself. You know, uh, for all human history, we could be stupidly violent and we could kill lots of each other, but we weren't going to commit civilizational suicide. Well, like we can now. I mean, that's, I guess that's an accomplishment, right? A sign of, of, of progress. But now we have like all of these ways we can kill ourselves. We have gotten so big for our britches and it's uh, nuclear weapons, it's climate change, it's the risk of pandemics. We have all these problems where we can't defend ourselves alone. And what that means, and this is the, the, the lesson of the nuclear age, is like maybe you have to talk to the people you don't like. Mm. Maybe you have a shared interest in survival, even if you have real things that divide you. And so... The reason that we ended up doing this podcast is because, like, that's hard for governments to do. That's unnatural. They kind of did it with the Iran deal, and then they were like, oh, yeah, we don't, we don't actually like doing this very much. And so, you know, we have to find ways to push, shame, encourage governments to 
not try to solve these problems by themselves, but to actually work together, which, you know, is so fundamentally not their first response. And again, if we have a kind of a thesis to the reason we're also here on this show that's going forward, maybe, and Jeffrey, you could restate this if you'd like, it is within the power of individual citizens to make a difference. Does that ring true to your experience? And, and are, there, are there points where you feel optimistic about the possibility of people making a difference like that? I mean, yeah, I, I, I do feel really optimistic. And I think that there's, you know, you talked about governments don't want to talk to each other. And I think right now we're in a like particularly divisive political time in the United States where people don't really want to talk to each other. And that like, I, I feel like my own, my, I personally aspire to like get over that myself. And just to give you an example, I was doing a show in Centralia, Washington. And when I arrived there, 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 there this is a few hours outside of Seattle, when I arrived there, there were people that were like protesting my show. You know, they had pickets, the whole thing, because they thought I was going to convert everyone to Islam, um, which is hilarious. And uh, by the way, just by coming to the show, you have all converted to Islam. So uh, welcome. <laughs> it takes place at mostly podcast tapings. But um, so they were there protesting me. And of course, like we're in North, you know, we're in the Pacific Northwest. So it starts raining. And I go up to them and I was like, hey, guys, like, Thanks for being here. Like, weirdly, you're kind of my biggest fans because you paid money on poster board. And but it, it's raining. Like, why don't you come inside? You can watch the show. You could sit in the back. And then when the show's done, you can come right back out and keep protesting. And they thought about it. Um, and they were like, well, no, we won't see the show, but maybe we'll sit in the lobby. And I was like, yeah, yeah, like sit in the lobby. Like, you should get out of the rain. And like the producers were really embarrassed that this was happening and they kept apologizing to me and everything. And I was like, no, 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 don't be embarrassed. Like, this is amazing. You know, like we live in America and I'm, uh, I'm allowed to perform here and they're allowed to protest me. And that's one of the great things about this country is that we can actually have opposing views and still kind of come together in this way and let our, our rights play out, which is what we did that night. So they sat in the lobby. I did my show. They came back out, continued protesting. It was all very <laughs> Very civilized. And, and and at the end of the day, like, honestly, I think they that it was a form of disarmament because <laughs> because I feel like they were I'll like, take it. <laughs> I feel like they were not expecting for me to work with them about this rain situation, you know, and we worked together uh, on this thing and solved it and then and went on. Like, do they, like, love Muslims now? Like, definitely not. But, like, they, I think they are going to have just a bit of pause next time they're confronted with one, you know? And so I think that it is in our power to change the, the vibe and the tone of the country with the way that we kind of pursue conversations with people who we don't necessarily agree with. Hmm. Uh, and Jeffrey, if you would just bring us home kind of with a, your restatement of why this show matters to you and what you're hoping it will do, how you're hoping it will land with policymakers, with artists, with other people who are currently citizen activists or people who don't see themselves that way, but could become that kind of a person. What are you hoping the show will do for them? 
Yeah, so as a professor, I do kind of two things. Right? One is I write papers no one reads. <laughs> and, and the second thing is I give talks, and at the end of talks, people say, like, how can I help? And I kind of look, like, blankly at them, like, what, like, what kind of question is that, right? And this, this season of the podcast is intended to answer that question, right? It's, it's intended to look at this problem we have where governments are so bad at cooperating. And in particular, it was rooted in this moment where like, geez, it seems hopeless, right? I mean, like, you know, we started and the Iran deal was falling apart and like now things in Ukraine are terrible and like it is just, boy, the world seems super dangerous. And yet we were reminded that, you know, like things have sucked in the past too. And, and when things suck and governments don't seem terribly interested in solving the problem, there have always been people who are willing to kind of jump in and get involved, right? Take the business of government and make it their business. And we really, we didn't, we didn't want to tell a, like, a really depressing set of stories about like, why the world is so messed up because, like, you know, thanks, I notice. But we did think it would be great to tell the stories of people who tried to make a difference. And, you know, like... I would say they're normal people, but like some of them are really weird. Um, but the point is they're not government employees, right? They are people who decided to get involved because they figured government needed a push. It needed an example. Uh, it needed some encouragement. And, you know, they're, they're, I think they're pretty good stories. Um, particularly, you know, when Tom Cochran, a physicist, goes naked uh, and goes skinny dipping in the Soviet Union. <laughs> That's a perfect place to wrap it up for the night. <laughs> um, so let me read us through the credits here. Uh, let's start by giving Nagin and Jeffrey a huge round of applause. <laughs> Thanks to all of you for joining us today. And to all of our listeners, thanks for listening to The Reason We're All Still Here. I'm Carl Nellis, guest host for the live episode, which is recorded here at the Green Space in New York City. This episode was produced by Gemma Castelli-Foley, with additional help from Kelsey Albright, Mark Van Heer, and me. Our executive producers are Andy Chug, Whitney Donaldson, and our usual host with the most, Jeffrey Lewis. Huge special thanks to Nagin's team at Fake the Nation, and to the hardworking crew here at the Green Space. This podcast is a production of Gilded Audio and the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys.
today in the Middle East. happens in Ukraine has consequences for what's happening AI. Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex, but it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters, wherever you listen.